Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here today. I'm excited about this interview. As always, I'm here with Rajiv Anand, the CEO of Quartic. Rajiv, how are you? I'm well, Robert. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I mean, you're one of the, the leading experts in AI and maintenance and reliability, so I'm excited to have you on today. Oh, I'm, uh, I don't know if I deserve <laughs> compliments in those two areas. I don't think I'm an expert in either, but I've learned enough of both uh, to be somewhat useful, I, sh- I would say. <laughs> useful as being modest. So I, I guess to, to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So how'd you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Right. So I, actually, um, I think I've said this in uh, some, some conversations as I got involved with the, the reliability community. I still consider myself what I call myself a reliability immigrant in that my, my background and my career uh, did not start out in reliability and maintenance. Uh, my background is all process control and automation. I'm an instrumentation engineer uh, by trade. And most of the work I'd done, uh, pretty much most of my career, was related to process control and process automation. Uh, I started getting exposed to reliability and maintenance uh, when I was part of the Emerson process management, Emerson automation family, uh, when Emerson launched the Plant 5 system. But uh, reliability and maintenance at that point in time, to me, meant more the reliability and maintenance of uh, the devices, uh, like the instruments and the valves and what have you. Uh, but then when Emerson acquired uh, CSI, uh, that's when I really started getting exposed uh, more to machinery health, uh, vibration analysis, uh, and then as Wihart and Wireless came about, uh, and then Emerson had done an acquisition uh, for a company called MRG, you might have heard of. So that's when actually it was from those MRG folks that I would say that I really started learning the real principles of reliability and maintenance from a true reliability practice point of view. So uh, I don't have nearly as much depth as you know practitioners like yourselves uh, uh, but i started learning that in the last two three years uh, uh, started you know joined the uh, reliability community and uh, have learned i i'd say more than 
hands-on practice. I haven't done as much as you guys have, but I learned from people like yourselves. <laughs> and no, it's fun. It's fun. And, and I guess kind of leading off to that. So, so you've been in the community for the last couple of years. Like what led you to start a company focused on artificial intelligence in kind of reliability space? Uh, so I think that's a uh, two, two sort of two parts to that uh, answer. Uh, so getting into the AI space was wow. uh, something that, like I said, I've been in automation. I have seen automation from the 3 to 15 PSI pneumatic controllers to 4 to 20 milliamps and then heart and the field buses and that whole you know, the R equivalent of the internet. So I've seen it go through all those aspects. And, you know, as people call industry 4.0, the industry 3.0 is what I had lived in for almost 30 years. And I see it as a natural evolution. Uh, So what made me jump into the AI space was as I started following it, I noticed that most people, I don't want to name any companies, but Uh, You know, most people or most companies who were coming into in this space, uh, with a few exceptions, of course, were coming in as outsiders. Uh, By that, I mean uh, they were developing great AI and data science products, uh, but when applying it to manufacturing, um, they didn't really understand the implications of industrial and manufacturing applications. So uh, my journey in AI actually started out by you know, as some of my customers were going through starting these digital transformation initiatives and I talked to them and I said, well, how do you, would you apply it when it actually gets to your supply chain? Uh, You have to engage process control and automation people. So I saw, I saw a gap there and I have always been, there's a, a technology geek hidden in me somewhere that that was the other part of it i wanted to learn about this i didn't want to miss uh, this part of the automation evolution so I, I i thought if someone like me who comes from a manufacturing reliability process control background was to uh, learn this space and apply it uh, we could do a much better job so i i saw it as an opportunity to learn but also be part of this you know, evolution, next evolution of automation. I had lived through all the previous ones. I didn't want to miss out on this one. And uh, what led me to start the company myself was, uh, uh, you know, if I had to wait uh, in in the corporate world where I was, uh, I wouldn't be able to do it at, as hands-on. Uh, so I had always wanted to do something uh, uh, of my own anyways. And there were some people in Silicon Valley uh, who were encouraging me to, uh, you know, come sort of join their world. And one thing led to another. Um, that's how I ended up, uh, you know, starting out uh, in AI. I was fortunate in that I was able to just take a year off, took a sabbatical from my job and uh, uh, was just able to go and learn. Um, uh, spent about six months in Silicon Valley, was fortunate to, you know, work with some uh you know, real legends in the AI space, uh, you know, learned from them and saw, I was able to learn what we need to build, particularly for this community, that we could build something with a differentiator, we could build something that would be practical uh, for not for data scientists, but, you know, people like you, Rob, uh, you know, who are practitioners, 
uh, I felt that they're the ones who are going to solve the real problems, uh, not the data scientists. So that's really what's the genesis of Cortec.ai is, you know, uh, eventually AI will be just like a tool and it's already getting there, a tool for any practitioner who knows their domain very well and like reliability. Uh, so what I started out doing was how do we build something which will make AI to be just another tool in their toolbox, so to speak, to solve these problems. Yeah. And, you know, like just to kind of take off what you said there, that's one of the things that I think you you guys do as well as is realizing that to solve the problems, it's not necessarily starting with purely a data science approach. It's starting with the equipment expertise and kind of using that to guide where you go. And I think that's true for any application. Uh, it's, you know, I think for manufacturing, for reliability and maintenance, it's a, it's a little bit even more so. But in any vertical, in any field, if you're going to try to make AI useful, that's where AI is now, right? Verticalization, verticalization of AI is what's really going to make it valuable, uh, not the theoretical aspects. So it could be any discipline, any field that you're involved in. Um, the, the real data science aspects will continue to become more and more automated, uh, just like all other previous technologies you've seen evolve, right? Uh, that, you know, the programming aspects or the data science aspects, companies are already automating that. Uh, so that part will continue to get automated. And we, we also are automating a lot of that in the background. Um, so I think that's when AI will really shine. And we, we're all, we're, we're starting to see that happen. Uh, and that's when adoption will will will, will take off. I don't think uh, it's something that needs to be pushed on people. Uh, people already, you know, practitioners, people who know the machines, they know what problems they need to solve. And once they recognize that I can solve those problems with AI, you don't have to be pushing for adoption. It will be a natural adoption. So I guess I guess that leads me to one of the first questions here is. Why is AI better than like a static rule set or just having somebody look at it by themselves? Right. So two parts to it, right? Uh, I wouldn't say in most cases that AI is better, right? So a lot of the AI applications that one can apply to first is, can it be equal to a human analyst, right? Not necessarily better, but can it do what a human analyst could do? And if that's the case, then what you have done is, you know, I ask people this question, no matter what type of data you analyze, uh, you know, who wants to continually, repeatedly do the same thing over and over again to look at some data or some trends and come to conclusions? Uh, if it's so repetitive, uh, why not have an algorithm? Think of it as, you know, instead of hiring a human assistant, you've hired an AI assistant to say, hey, you know, these are repeated analysis that we do all the time. Can you do them as well as I could so that I can move on to doing something, I don't want to say better, but can I move on to doing something more more complex, more challenging? You know, I, I ask people this question, you know, if you're 
the head of a maintenance department or you know you are the director of reliability i ask people this question to say how many of you have more people more human resources available to you than you need generally speaking people don't have enough time in their days uh, or enough resources allocated to them to be able to you know solve all the problems so the first thing is the ones that are repeated analysis that a human does and can easily do uh, use ai as an assistant to do it for them so that's the it's, so it's it's not necessarily ai is better than a human but it's an assistant let ai do that that's you know it's i don't want to say it's boring but it's repetitive the second one where you would say ai is better would be if you have to look at relationships between so many different variables right they could be variables related to the condition of the asset the operation of the asset uh, the life cycle of the asset you have to draw relationships uh, first of all the number of relationships typically you know they say a human can only analyze four or five variables at a time uh, so the so the relationships are complex one number two the nature of the relationships is dynamic and by that i mean it's going to change depending on the context so it's it's going to be different when you looked at it but as this state of the operation state of the machine changed uh, the relationships are not hardwired they can change uh, that is something ai can do absolutely do much better than a human can that's that's just a fact uh, you know dynamic multivariate relationships you know theoretically could you say is a human brain capable of solving them absolutely but is it practical no it is not so you know things that uh, two things right one is when we have problems and we go back uh, to try and analyze them so we look at them from a backwards historical look point of view um, you could spend hours you know many man days to look through that data and come to that conclusion right um, ai can do that much faster than a human can uh, secondly ai can do that on a continuous basis as opposed to going into historical data and find the relationships it's doing it on real time basis and the biggest one to me is the prediction part i mean the the whole purpose of machine learning and ai is prognostics right being able to forecast what's going to happen in the future right uh, the reality is um, you know people who have deep domain expertise about one machine or one subject if they if they continually monitor if all, if all they were doing was sitting in front of that machine and monitoring what was happening to it you know are they likely to tell that something is going to happen to that machine 6 from 6 months from now the answer is yes uh, they would but if that's all they did and that is what i look at as a great application of ai uh, that if all of that's being monitored and it's able to i i prefer to use the term forecast as opposed to prediction uh, prediction still somewhat implies uh that there are assumptions being made whereas forecasting say is based on the facts that i'm looking at now and based on how historically things happen uh and based on what i know about this machine 
uh, particularly when you start combining it with first principle models, which are referred to as digital twins, um, you can get a really good forecast of what's going to happen in the future. And to me, that is the real value. Sorry if that was a very long answer to your question, but th th those are the two aspects. No, that was that was great. And, and I guess... So you've been working with a fair amount of customers and you've done a bunch of pro, uh, like different types of projects. And I put out, I put out to the listeners um, an opportunity to ask some questions and this kind of leads into it. And so Ali Reza Gudarzi asks, like what types of uses do you see with AI across predictive maintenance? So if you want to just talk from your personal experience at Cortec, like what kind of different applications are you using AI on? Mm -hmm. You know, without being specific to uh, a machine, right? If I, I was to talk in general terms uh, based on the type of problems we've solved, very few of them have been focused on using condition data. So that's, so that's you know, something else that I think sometimes misunderstood. Um, so by that, what I mean is there are very few problems where we've simply used uh, condition data like vibration or ultrasonic by itself. Uh, the type of problems that we've been able to solve in a practical way uh, are where we can use that condition data and apply it with the process data uh, or, or the operating data of the machine, right? And been able to extend the coverage that one can provide with predictive maintenance. By that, I mean, like, there are, there are failure modes that you could go after with just pure condition monitoring like vibration. But if you combine that now with the electrical data or the process data, we've been able to co provide coverage for failure modes, which was not otherwise possible. That's one. Uh, the other one, which has been really exciting, uh, both for us and for our customers, is uh, doing predictions without using any uh, uh, traditional condition data. So looking at the electrical behavior, uh, for example, of, a let's say, a vacuum pump, uh, being able to develop a model which simply looks at the transient behavior, so you know, every time that that pump starts, I think we all understand that concept, uh, that the behavior of the inrush current and how it's going to behave during the startup, uh, producing the startup torque. Um, if we've been able to model its performance over multiple starts, from that it data itself, we've been able to uh, create true early warning before the condition sensors could ever have picked it up. I mean, in terms of uh, weeks or months ahead. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that type of early warning may not have the precision in that it, it, it may not be able to say that the problem is with the bearing or the problem is with, the, with, the, with this part of the motor, but it gave you a much earlier warning uh, so some of the customers that we are working with, what they've been able to do by using that early warning is even if they had manual data collection on it or route-based data collection on it, that early warning is used for them 
to change their monitoring periods. Uh, so you can even make a route-based program much more effective by using early warnings, which were given to you not from a condition sensor, but from just the behavior of the machine, you know, how it was behaving from an electrical perspective, how it was behaving from a process perspective. Those we found uh, to be the most uh, valuable and exciting applications. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. And also, like, that's one of the things that you guys have talked about at a few conferences was that, you know, you don't need to go out and buy sensors. A lot of the data that your plant currently tracks can be used to, like, to use, to apply AI to detect, you know, failures or to forecast failures. Right. And and I think it starts to put, um, um, you know, I know the true reliability practitioners understand that. And sometimes they're constantly trying others in their organizations to under, understand that, that they're not a maintenance function, right? The, the reliability is a function that's is truly providing you, uh, you know, operational certainty or operational, uh, you know, sort of uh, an indication of the overall operational behavior of the asset, right? That has nothing to do with maintenance, right? Uh, so the other thing it does is uh, you end up engaging reliability and operations uh, knowledge and therefore bringing those two functions together. Um and it's not the same as uh, operator-driven re- reliability, but the point here is uh, you have to focus more on, you truly have to understand uh, one is not at a component level, but at a system level behavior, right? Those are, those are some of the reliability principles that we know to be the right ones, but AI, I don't want to say forces you to apply them, but if you start applying them, then you make AI really valuable. So I would say, uh, you know, a reliability practitioner or a maintenance practitioner or a machinery analyst who will succeed in the new world with AI and machine learning will be the one who is able to take a system level approach and truly understands the operating behavior of that asset. Uh, They're the ones who will be more successful in solving problems. I really like that. No, I I think that you're right. I mean, there's also like the other thing that's nice about taking that type of approach is you will get as kind of a side effect of that is you'll get cultural buy-in, which I think is super important in having these AI projects succeed. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next question I've gotten, and I've gotten it at multiple different conferences from a bunch of different people is... How much data do we need to get started? It depends on the technique you're going to use, right? And it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. But in general, let me put this out there as a general principle, that more data will beat a really clever algorithm any day. That, that's a given. People are working on technologies which can work better with less data, but that principle generally applies. So... Answering the question, how much data, I don't think it can be answered in terms of the duration or the size in megabytes or gigabytes, right? What I try to go for is, do you, if you're trying to solve a particular problem, let's say if you're trying to predict 
a particular variable or if you're trying to do uh, anomaly detection of a fault uh, or a fault prediction the model needs to be able to see have seen the behavior of those variables under all possible circumstances right which means that let's say if you if you only had six months worth of data but that six months worth of data represents you know all the you know startup transient behavior full load you know uh, different load conditions uh, and it has potentially seen some abnormal behavior within that data set that six months worth of data is good now you could say i have six months worth of data uh, in this for the same asset but in those six months uh, things didn't change much while that same six months of data is going to be much less useful than the previous six months that I talked about. One thing, one really key principle that I've learned is, see, any good AI or any machine learning model is going to be developed well if the data that you gave it had variance in it. And, and it's kind of, kind of counterintuitive, right? Because a lot of the times what we are trying to do is we're trying to reduce variance, right? Uh, if, I, if I give a model six years worth of data, right? Or 60 years worth of data, right? But within that, there was very little variance on a model. There were pretty close to flat lines. There's nothing to learn from it. it it's no different than, no different than humans if all you do is you see the same thing over and over again, you're limited, your knowledge is limited to that. So, so in answering you know, how much data, it's more about what is in that data. So is there any knowledge in that data? Is there anything to be learned from that data? Knowledge is knowledge and learning from data comes from how much variance it has in it. So that's a way to go about deciding how much data you need, right? So it's not the quantity, it's does that data actually have information from which the model can learn? And information, again, I'm repeating myself, perhaps repeating, is information is encoded in the data in the form of variance. You gotta find that. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people think about. They just want an answer like, oh, it's six months or a year or whatever. But really, if if you're trying to train a model on a failure, like on 10 different failure modes, but you only show it five, you can't expect it to understand the other five. Right, right, exactly. Now, something that you did mention at uh, the main train conference was that you guys are working on like a failure simulator. Do you want to give us a little intro on what that is? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, we are doing the second iteration of that now. We have uh, we're fortunate to get uh, a couple of uh, uh, really good uh, researchers working with us on that now. Uh, so, without giving away too much, because we still don't have the patent. Uh, so, machine learning models. Uh, generally are used to, they've been trained on data and they get new data and they tell you something, 
those in your audience who understand machine learning a little bit more would know about the concept of uh, generative models, uh, or you can look it up. So this is where you can have use machine learning to generate an output. So fundamentally, that's really what we're doing. So, uh, you know, use generative models who the models have seen the data. They may not, the model has not seen a lot of past failures or anomalies, but it was given enough data to understand the behavior of the basic variables and features. That knowledge can be used to make it generate what would be anomalous patterns, right? Now, the key here is, you know, if I was to show you something anomalous, so, so you, you don't have a lot of labeled failures to give me, but if I was to show you a pattern of those variables, if you knew that machine and that problem, you'll be able to say, yeah, this looks abnormal, right? Now, that's a simpler part. But what is the likelihood of that abnormality actually happening on the asset? That you can learn from that data, and that's really where we're putting in that secret sauce uh, to present to you patterns which you'll be able to tell that they're anomalous, but they actually are likely to happen. That that makes sense? Absolutely. And and you're using those failure kind of simulations to train your other models that are detecting them, right? Right. So this is to speed up the process. Um, you know, uh, most, once again, I, I don't mean to point out to anybody's approach as being good or bad. Uh, you know, people who don't come from the manufacturing world, uh, who have great data science uh, uh, technology and capabilities, uh, will come into a manufacturing application and say, do you have a lot of uh, failure and anomaly data? If you do, I can, you know, train the models. Uh, you know, unlike doing an AI application for, let's say, the stock market or something else, or, 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 or insurance or credit card fraud, et cetera, where finding anomalous, anomalies happen a lot. They happen every day, right? Uh, in manufacturing, in, in, in industrial applications, we don't have that, right? Uh, it's not that failures happen every day uh, or frequently because, it, you know, nobody's running their equipment that poorly or badly. And secondly, failures and anomalies are in industrial and manufacturing applications are very expensive, Right. So someone's not simply going to generate them, um, uh, you know, an OEM could probably generate some of that in a, a lab setting. And the reality is you could use digital twins uh, to do that. But when you're talking about physical behavior, when you're talking about, you know, not just process dynamics, but the physical behavior of the equipment and many things that could impact it, um, it, it's 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 not that easy. So the whole idea of that simulator is to get people started uh, uh, quicker to be able to build and train models um, uh, without a lot of lot of past failure and anomaly data. 
So we're really excited about it. So we've just, uh, we're just finishing version two of that. We've made it a little bit better than our, our first release was. Awesome. No, you like, if you ever release version two, let me know, we can, we can put it out there. So everyone knows about it. Yeah. So we are hoping to release that in March. Awesome. So I guess, you know, kind of stepping off that Lucas Marino asks, what do you think are kind of the biggest hurdles to having a successful implementation of an AI project? I think, not defining and designing the problem uh, well, uh, not understanding the the equipment uh, and the equipment problems and the equipment behavior. Uh, that's that's a hurdle, uh, and the other still is, and I don't mean to talk about it from a hype point of view there is a lot of hype conversation about the it ot convergence etc but there is some reality to that uh, and that has more to do with how data has been treated in the past uh, you know I'm I've, I'm I've worked with the most sophisticated organizations who thought they were doing a great job of data collection therefore they thought they'd be very well set to do this uh, we have never had to look at data from this perspective uh, so you know if, if if someone is planning to implement this in the future or even in the near term before you go down the path of ai look at two things uh, you know one is the data that you have uh, Take a closer look at it. Uh, see, is it as good as you think it is? Chances are it won't be in most cases. Uh, that's one. And the second is uh, uh, problem uh, or, or solution design, it, which has nothing to do with data science, has nothing to do with AI. Uh, it has everything to do with reliability fundamentals. Uh, you know. The other thing I say is AI can be used to solve a lot of problems, but should you use it everywhere? Uh, what is the right application? It's So you you should first review it and, and say, I'm not going to try and use AI as a band-aid to a problem that should be solved uh, through other means. So very classic example that everybody uses as uh, uh, as an application of AI or pattern recognition is, uh, you know, uh, detecting cavitation. Yes, sometimes you do have to put something in to detect cavitation, but, you know, if you're going to spend X amount of money to do cavitation detection, could that have been spent better on eliminating the causes of cavitation? Uh, is there something fundamentally wrong with your piping geometry and your flow that should be corrected rather than, you know, using AI to build a cavitation detector? Uh, so a lot of those fundamentals and basics to say this problem cannot be solved with traditional techniques. Uh, and therefore, we should apply AI to it and then looking at do we have the data for it? Because uh, if you, I've seen, give you some examples of where I've seen the failures is 
you started out with what you thought you were beginning starting an AI project, but it ended up turning into a sensor project because you didn't have the data. And you know, unless you're dealing with some really high speed, high cycle time equipment, um, you know, you might need to wait a year to get data from those sensors to do your AI. So then are you really doing AI projects? Uh, are you really able to demonstrate the AI value to your organization? So, you know, start with, start with those where you understand the problem and you may not have all the data, but you have most of the data. Perfect. I guess that leads me to the next question. So Stephen Perrier asks, how do you validate the raw input data? I, I think what the question being asked here is, does that data represent the, the actual state of the equipment? Uh, that is, you know, so, so the way data scientists will perform, the first function they'll perform on the data would be a technique called EDA, uh, exploratory data analysis. What you're looking for is, uh, you know, are the, the distribution of data, granularity of data, uh, is it consistent? Uh, does it actually represent what the model is likely to see in the future? Uh, if I understood the question correctly. So, so what you're looking at is you don't want to be training your models on noise because if you've trained it on noise, then it's really not going to be useful to look at the baseline behavior and tell you what is, what is abnormal, right? Uh, I'm not sure if I addressed that uh, correctly, but what you're essentially what you what you're looking for is the data that's going to become features into the model. Uh, you know, is it consistent? Does it represent uh, you know the distributions uh, that actually happened during the process? Um, you know, did I give you an example? Let's say you were working on a chiller. And all the data that you gave it was from the winter time, right? Um, it, it, you know, two thirds of the data is the winter time data when the chiller doesn't work that much or at all. Uh, so does it does it represent what will likely happen to those variables? Um, that's probably a key principle to use. So if I if I didn't understand the question correctly, I'd be happy to follow up. Um, it's so it, it's making sure that you're not building something, building a model on noise and you're not building a model on something that does not is not likely to represent the real behavior of that equipment uh, in a facility. Yeah, I, I think I think you understood the question correctly, but obviously, like you're I mean, you're happy to answer questions. So I guess that leads me to like we'll wrap up here. So. Where can we? Where can people find you? Where can people find Cortec.ai? Give us, give us kind of, you know, some plugs here. Our website, of course, www.cortec.ai. Um, LinkedIn, we do try to follow us. If you follow us on LinkedIn, we do try to share some knowledge there as well. Uh, and I'm happy to take uh, as many questions uh, from your community. Uh, you can simply go to inf write to info at quartic.ai and those questions will uh, end up with one of the experts. And uh, we are, as, and Rob, Rob, you know this, uh, 
you know, we believe that the more educated people are, the better choices they will make. So we're always happy to do, you know, uh, a little bit more personalized, uh, you know, one hour, two hour type of trainings. We will be putting on some of the training that we've been doing at, uh, you know, the IMC and the reliability conference, et cetera. We're going to try to convert those into one hour modules uh, so people can consume them uh, at their own, own time and pace. Uh, hope to have that released on our website uh, uh, by the end of this quarter towards March. Perfect. Yeah, th- those are, I mean, I was at the one at the reliability conference. It was great. And definitely like people, when when those are released, definitely jump on those because I think there's a lot of valuable information there. I guess, Rajiv, are you going to be at any conferences coming up here in 2019? So we will obviously will be at the reliability conference in May. Uh, I believe is that in Vegas or Seattle? Seattle this year, I think. Uh, actually, we are also doing a full day workshop. Uh, like the previous workshops we've done have been four-hour workshops. We're doing a full day workshop at uh, uh, the uh, the the reliability center at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, in March. Uh, so, people who are attending that March conference, uh, we have a full day workshop uh, happening there. Um, those who are in the Reliability Leadership Institute uh, would generally uh, be at most of the RLI uh, meetings as well. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I see. I see you guys. Seems to be every conference. So you're you're everywhere. <laughs> awesome. So you know, Rajiv, I want to I want to thank you for coming on. I mean, I think that there was some great. You know, we 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 touched on some great stuff here, and I think that people are gonna definitely, you know, have some, at least some thought provoking questions. And I mean, if, if you want to reach out, obviously info at cortec.ai, you can email and get your questions answered there. You can, or you can, you know, ask me on LinkedIn, uh, or you can email Rob's reliability project at gmail.com. And, you know, we can have another episode where Rajiv comes back on to answer some more questions. Thank you, Rob. No, I I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. It's a pleasure.